good morning and welcome very much to a slightly different webinar than we usually have on FS Club. We're absolutely delighted uh, to welcome Austin Morgan, who's a barrister at 33 Bedford Road Chambers, and he's here to talk uh, to us about pretense, why the UK needs a written constitution. And he will, in fact, be presenting his, uh, his book, uh, and I'm really excited about it. Why do I say it's unusual? Well, as you know, in my normal opening, I point to our many, many sponsors and I say, you know, that what they allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics and finance. And that is true. But today we're going to tackle something that is clearly political. Um, there will be financial, economic and uh, technical issues to do with any constitution in the modern era. But the written constitution is, I think, an interesting topic for us here today. And I'm hoping, and this is a call to all of you uh, out there uh, in uh, the webinar, to please uh, get your comments, questions, and observations in early. Now, it's interesting to me that Vernon Bogdanor uh, wrote a book, The Monarchy and the Constitution. Uh, David Carradine said it's as much in the shadow of Edmund Burke as it is of Walter Badgett, because Bogdanor stressed the organic development of the British Constitution, preferred evolution to revolution, and thought stability was better than strife. And I think that is a characteristic. I personally was uh, spent most of my time in my youth in the United States, did a small course on constitutional law at Harvard, and like many Americans, uh, believe that a written constitution is the right way to do things, only to encounter the glories and wonders of the British constitution when I arrived. And I have become uh, slightly now uh, the other side. I, I prefer an unwritten constitution. I think, but that's what we're going to be exploring today. Now, I, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert. Also, we'll be speaking as ever for about 20 minutes, and then we have 20 minutes for Q&A. And so therefore, three points of housekeeping. Uh, yes, the slides such as they are uh, will be available, but my strong suggestion is buy the book, uh, and there'll be a link to that in a moment. Uh, secondly, uh, how do you participate? Well, you use the go-to question and answer facility. Austin and I are here with you. Uh, we're not watching our emails. We're not on uh, WhatsApp or LinkedIn or any other the various media to contact us, just to ask the questions here. All of the questions that you pose, all the observations will be sent to Austin. So if you want to point him to something, uh, just stick it right in there. He will get everything with your email attached uh, so he can respond to you uh, afterwards. Um, and I guess the last thing uh, to say is let's have fun. This should be a roaring and rollicking conversation. Uh, before we start, uh, just to test the temperature of the audience and be forewarned, this will be happening twice more. Uh, we have a little poll here. Do you support the notion that the UK needs a written constitution? Um, it's a tough question. So if you wouldn't mind selecting yes or no, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Um, and Austin, uh, we do have a fairly opinionated audience. Over 60%, 70% have now voted 80%. So you'll be able to see how fast things are here. We're going to close and have a look at that. And ooh, interesting here. Uh, uh, definitely uh, in the minority, uh, and I'm in the majority. But let's see where this goes. So let's remember those numbers 71% no and 29% yes. And therefore, with no more ado, Austin, you're very welcome, and the floor is yours. Uh, Michael, thank you very much. I am by profession a lawyer. I think like a lawyer, but before I was a lawyer, I wrote history 
and I suppose the two sides of my life have come together. Uh, this is the book, and you see a slide of it. Uh, the moment of Brexit, I argue, that was 2016 to 2020, remains unprecedented in our constitutional history. The metropolitan elite is still critical of Theresa May and Boris Johnson, who actually successfully took us out of the European Union in a legal manner. Others, especially including myself, criticize additionally the behavior of Parliament during those four years, and especially the Supreme Court decision in the case brought by Joanna Cherry in Scotland and Gina Miller in London. And it is because that case took the form it did that I have opted for a written constitution. The book is called Pretense. I got the idea from pretender, usually referred to an illegitimate sovereign. But in fact, what I was referring to was much of the superstructure of our constitution is just culture, is not the reality. So it is a pretense system. I do argue in the book most definitely that the constitution we created essentially in the fourth quarter of the 19th century no longer is viable in the 21st century. Um, there are a number of summary reasons why I decided to go for a written constitution. One, we had 40 years of learning how to use fundamental law, which came from Europe. It should not be wasted. It is an opportunity. The second is that I've been a supporter of a UK Bill of Rights ever since David Cameron asked me to serve on a commission of non-party people to advise him. And I do think despite Dominic Raab's political destruction, that remains a legitimate objective. And finally, I am a proponent of federalizing the UK, largely to retain Scotland. Now the jacket of the book is an Edward Bauer portrait from 1649. It was commissioned by a parliamentary family. He was a portraitist and the original remains in a house in the West Country. It was used after the restoration in 1660 by the Royalists and the copy in the Royal Gallery is in fact a fake copy of this genuine portrait that I bought the rights to. Uh, we have a new king. He once suggested he wanted to become defender of faith. It would be up to parliament to change his title, but I suspect that the king might walk into a different political crisis given his enthusiasms and given the way he's conducted himself since he succeeded his mother last autumn. I trace my big idea of a written constitution from a legal academic in 1970. It, his idea was then broadcast by Lord Hailsham with his overblown concept of an elective dictatorship. But Lord Newberger, when president of the Supreme Court, did give a lecture in Wales arguing for the codification of the constitution. And Sir Vernon Bogdanar, still our leading political scientist and political historian, 
has been arguing for a written constitution for the last 20 years. I do know that David Cameron, when he was prime minister, thought that 2015 would be a good time to have a UK Bill of Rights. 2015 being, of course, the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta in 1215. I learned recently that when Gordon Brown was prime minister, he thought that 2015 would be a good time to have a written constitution. Problem is, he didn't remain in power. And the second problem was he never actually organized to produce a written constitution. Our constitutional law, whatever of the 1,000 remarkable years of continuity we've had since the Norman invasion, can be found in A.V. Dicey's 1885 book, Introduction to the Study of the Law of the Constitution. That is the text lawyers are taught when they do a course on constitutional and or administrative and or European law. Dicey's triptyque, that is parliamentary sovereignty followed by the rule of law, followed by convention, conventions has become canonical in this country. I'm afraid I'm a, an iconoclast, I dissent. I take the view the parliamentary sovereignty is a very confusing way of saying that parliament is the source of our law. Dicey, of course, went on then to talk about the judiciary as essentially the source of subordinate law, which of course does not adequately describe the common law and is a term which is now used for delegated legislation. Dicey quoted in his 1885 book, a legal colleague at Oxford called James Bryce, who in fact had been born in Belfast. He is the man who laid down the, the contrast between the UK having a flexible constitution and Europeans with their written constitutions having rigid constitutions. Now the irony in Dicey appropriating this characterization from James Bryce is that James Bryce produced a two-volume book called The American Commonwealth, three years after Dicey, which affirmed the wonders of the US written constitution. Um, Bryce thought it was flexible, it was not rigid. Bryce, of course, is open to criticism, not that anybody remembers him, but he is open to criticism for not anticipating the difficulties the US Constitution would have in the 20th century. It was the December 2019 Conservative Manifesto where the idea was first put forward of a commission on the Constitution. I was there at the time, I spotted it, and I thought it significant that this idea was coming from the right of the spectrum and not from the left. I had too much faith in that government and thought they would do something. Uh, the government of Boris Johnson did succeed on Brexit, did succeed in managing the pandemic, albeit with huge costs. But nevertheless, 
that short-lived government, in the opinion of Sir Anthony Selden, was essentially a shambolic operation in number 10. Now, I started to use the term from French political history, sans culotte, to refer to the Boris Johnson government, not just because the people had put him in number 10, but also because there was a certain radicalism in the politics of the government. I would accept the criticism that the radicalism was just Boris Johnson bouncing about from issue to issue. I don't in the book actually hang my hat on any particular set of reforms. I haven't written, this is my way to reform the UK constitution. The only point I argue, I hopefully not at a tedious length, is that whatever constitution we have, we should now eventually write it down after a thousand years. And I am interested in the idea of a commission on the constitution going back into the manifestos for the general election next year, because it would be in that commission that one would discuss all the possibilities from the most visionary to the most prosaic. And discourse is always a process of going from one to the other. I accept that a written constitution, especially after a thousand years without one, can only happen as a major historical event, but I do think that Brexit is the cause justifying it. The project would have to be popular. One route I put in the book is that our three law commissions could be entrusted with drafting it, but it would have to be advised by the committees in both houses of parliament. And then parliament would have to enact the constitution. But ultimately the people or the peoples of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland would vote on their bit, but also vote on the total package. And only if the people said yes, <clears throat> with sufficient majorities, would we actually have such a major introduction to our political history. In the book, I've, I've resisted all temptations to draft little bits. For example, how can you have popular sovereignty and also have a monarchy answer Spain's constitution in 1978 has both and they sit together without controversy. I do, however, end the book with a draft preamble, which is my way in the 21st century of looking back at a thousand years of history and summarizing it. So we accept the criticism, but we are not totally negative and self-hating about ourselves we do affirm that the state rose, the state expanded, there was an empire, we have decolonized, and now we're sitting off the mainland of Europe outside the European Union, but still within many other international forums. There are three precedents for my project. One is 1991, the left-leaning institute of public policy research, 
The second is Vernon Bogdaner's students at Oxford in 2006, who were asked not to be visionary, but just to write what they thought the constitution was, and it's salutary to read that text. You immediately say, oh, why do we do it this way and not that way? And the third precedent is a parliamentary committee from 2014-2015, chaired by an MP called Graham Allen, and he was advised by some academics from King's College, and they did produce a whole series of documents, including a draft written constitution. I want to end on the following hand of friendship note. In the bitter days of 2019, when we were still fighting about Brexit, the Constitution Society published a pamphlet called Good Chaps No More, Safeguarding the Constitution in Stressful Times. The authors were Andrew Blick and Peter Lord Hennessy. And they said, it may be a source of regret for some but certain elements of the venerable, perhaps romantic, good chap state of mind need now to be codified in cold, hard prose. I actually had cold, hard prose as a title for my book when I was writing it. Now, historians may disagree with Blick and Hennessy about who the bad chaps were during Brexit, but there is, I think, a consensus between them and between me that we do need a written constitution, regardless of the battles that were fought in recent years. I do offer the hand of friendship to these fellow constitutionalists in the Constitution Society, as well as to other like-minded lawyers in my chambers and further afield, uh, politicians who will do all the movement and political activists who will make the demands, perhaps in a more extreme and less moderate way. So I end with the following piece of rhetoric. Let us begin or rather resume the project. Excellent. Austin, thank you so much for that. Now, folks, we're going to, as I said, we're going to have two quick polls. Um, so, uh, sorry, three quick polls. Uh, so this is the second of the three. Again, uh, just after Austin's comments, uh, do you support the notion the UK needs a written constitution? And while you're answering, you know, it's interesting to me, your, your comment there about the good chaps. One of the quotes I dug out, uh, Austin, when looking at this was uh, to, from Gladstone, who says that the British constitution presumes more boldly than any other the good sense and the good faith of those who work it. Uh, which one might attribute to the fact that it's unwritten. Um, now, here we go. So we're now going to present those results. Whoa, uh, I can see that the audience is uh, really shifting around here today. Just a reminder, it was uh, 71 to 9 in the other direction. Uh, and now uh, basically people are supporting the need for a written constitution. Well, let's get into some of the uh, questions, comments, and chat. Uh, first one here is from Dan Feeney, uh, Austin. Dan uh, works in finance, He's uh, and he is an American, uh, and he says the UK has an embedded class system going back centuries and based on land ownership. Uh, without more social mobility, the aristocrats won't accept constitution on paper. Any comments on that? Um, 
the aristocrats used to dominate the House of Lords. The House of Lords will be under threat, possibly, if we have a Labour government. Things are moving. Uh, the Red Wall in 2019 was very important. Labour lost its working class base. And Boris Johnson, of all people, Eton and Oxford, actually managed to get the angels and marble into the top people's party. Things are changing. Okay, good. We've got um, uh, an observation from Trevor Hilder. Uh, he, he says that uh, Walter, Walter Badgett in 1867 stated that if the US Constitution was any good, there would not have been a US Civil War. <laughs> um, that is an example I do give. The Constitution didn't stop the Civil War, so I'm not putting forward a UK Constitution as a remedy to every problem. If the US Constitution couldn't stop a civil war, um, the UK Constitution will not achieve, uh, not, not solve every problem. On the other hand, the US Constitution survived the civil war and was renewed in the immediate wake of the civil war. Hmm. And uh, Trevor's also pointed out, and we'll send you something called lexon.org, L-E-X-O-N.org, which apparently is a programming language which helps people uh, produce contracts. And as you'd expect from a technical audience, we're all kind of thinking, how would we go about uh, doing this constitution using automated tools? Um, but uh, Trevor goes on to another point here, uh, and I'm not too sure if this is true or not. Um, he's asking, uh, why are so many countries with written constitutions so politically unstable? Now here he's pointing to France and the US. Uh, do you see a correlation between political instability and constitutions? Well, given, given that just about all the 200 states in the world have written constitutions, including okay. all of the British Commonwealth, all our former colonies, dominions, including all our dependent territories, um, there's not much statistically you can actually infer from that because the UK is pretty much alone along with New Zealand and watch the news today, Israel. Though I actually looked at the Israeli constitution this morning and it's got a movement towards basic law. So the Israelis never went for a written constitution but they do have a slightly different system. The UK is on its own with New Zealand. Hmm. Well, it uh, blows out, as you say, out of the water, no, no point in correlating. Um, <laughs> let's have a, uh, now, here's a one I, I'd be anxious uh, that you might spend a bit of time on. Uh, this is a really good question from Richard Harvey. Um, <laughs> he starts off sort of tongue-in-cheek. Is it essential that we spend enormous amounts of legal effort on constitutional development? I won't let, an, I won't let a barrister answer that one, because I know the answer is yes. <laughs> but surely we can copy one from elsewhere. Uh, which which country provides the best model for the UK and or England, he notes? Um, because of the way they did it, the US, but because the federal constitution was written in highly political contexts, uh, they didn't have the best of drafting. The US constitution is very short and I favor short and sweet. However, if you don't address some problems, they will come up and bite you. For example, 
the US Supreme Court has no law to stop people going on and on and on into their 80s. There is no retirement age and Congress was not permitted under the constitution to enact management law. Um, the, the, the clever thing today about producing a document is yes, it should be short and sweet. It should be uplifting. It should work and it should be flexible and you can have amendment at all sorts of different levels. You could have fundamental issues that have to go back to the people. You could have parliament doing more routine amending. You could even perish the thought have ministers through delegated legislation permitted to amend certain bits of the constitution. For example, changing the day we vote from Thursday to Friday or the Thursday to Sunday, um, that could be in a constitution, but why should it be sacred and absolute? Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. I, I at one point did do a good look at it. The US Constitution is almost uh, nigh on exactly 8,000 words. Um, it is horrifically brief. And you begin to look at these constitutional conventions, for example, the one in Chile that sort of recently fell apart a bit. Uh, people put on all sorts of clauses and it gets out of control. There's almost the discipline. Uh, um, Chile, Chile would be the case I warn against. I, remember I said the Constitutional Commission was in a conservative manifesto. Now that is unusual because people would have thought it should have come from the left of the political spectrum. I actually think it was Sir Geoffrey Cox dealing with the second Maria Miller case in the, in the Supreme Court who put that idea now, if the party had been able to hold itself together while it was doing all those other things, a good commission could have been put together using non-party people. The, the fear is that you will end up being swamped by radical and left-wing enthusiasts who want to write everything down, who want to stick their politics in everybody else's document, and that's the sort of thing that really repels people on the right of the spectrum in this country. I'm, I'm totally on the side of the people on the right. I do not want political radicals swamping a document. It should be controlled by the way it is set up. Unfortunately, 2019 was a seriously missed opportunity. Hmm. Okay. We've got um, an interesting point here from uh, from... Uh, Dan Feeney, um, Austin, in the course of doing a constitution, you'd be looking at the electoral system. Do you favor first past the post or proportional representation to elect MPs? <laughs> um, I favor a proportional system. And I should indicate that Parliament, during the First World War, on a cross-party basis, agreed that the first-past-the-post system had serious weaknesses. The more we look at politics, the more that must just be accepted. For example, Westminster has a particular configuration of parties, but our EU elections produced a different configuration of parties. The Brexit party was able to do well in European Union elections, the Brexit party can't even get one person into Westminster. 
Uh, I'm afraid that that is one of the big, big issues, and of course could be the breaking point for the Conservatives and for the Labour Party, because they have both profited from the first past the post, post system. I'm afraid a very wide coalition of critics of first past the post will have to be knitted together, and it will be little groups here, little groups there, but lots of little groups become possibly a bigger group. Yeah. Well, um, like a you know proportional versus first past the post, you know another thing is federalism. Um, now, this is a question from John Knight. Uh, I'll read it out uh, as he states it. As you prefer federalism, and the German constitution was largely written by the Brits after the war, could we not use Germany as a starting point? Uh, the reason I just pause for a second is uh, that is not my understanding. My understanding is that it was, it was the US, France, and Britain that wrote it. And in fact, if you've read the Grimm sets of the American influence is overwhelming, um, I would argue, but uh, maybe I'm wrong and John's right. But your thoughts on this? Uh, no, uh, the, the, that is true. It's the occupiers who created the new Germany. Uh, the one thing, aside from some questions of fundamental law and the sort of theology that we lawyers love to indulge in, the one thing I would take from Germany is the upper house as a model for reforming the House of Lords. And I think Gordon Brown has been so inspired and he has produced a report for the Labour Shadow Cabinet, which a year out from the general election is already being downgraded as Labour tries to put forward an image of responsibility. Um, there is a crisis in the House of Lords, though they do a good job and they actually do legislation better than the Commons. But there is a crisis of legitimacy. We have to put the state back together again. The threat in Scotland of separation is serious. And that threat was enabled by devolution. So giving them more devolution is not going to solve the breakup of the UK. I think we have to re-engineer the state. It would be different from all the other federations because they were all bringing small entities together, the 13 colonies in the US, the states in Canada, the states in Australia. We are different. We are a highly centralized state which has devolved power, but we can't actually hold the state together I think it would be possible to split the Scottish nationalists between those who are out and out separatists versus those who would like a permanent Scotland, which does play a role in a bigger entity. And then you would have the House of Lords representing the nations of the Federation in not quite a democratic way. You would overrepresent the small nations of the country to counteract the English influence, which I'm afraid exists in our state simply because of the number of English men and women. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, I want to turn to three comments, which I'm going to group together. Before I do so, I just, again, in surfing for today, I came across a lovely uh, remark uh, by Thomas Hardy in his book, The Hand of Ethelberta in 1876. He says, like the British constitution, she owes her success in practice to her inconsistencies in principle, um, you know, showing I think some of the flexibility. But of course, when you write it down, you're going to have to straighten a lot of this out. 
And uh, I think where we, we stand is kind of, we, we're after the, what I would call the dinner party killer comment here. So let me read three out to you. Um, Malcolm John Darley is sort of asking, what is the essential disadvantage of not having a fully codified constitution? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, Charles Henderson is saying, I'm still not sure what problem or problems would be resolved by having a written constitution. Isn't one of the problems the lack of knowledge by the many of what makes up the constitution and where it works well and reduces problems, for example, the stability provided by having an unelected apolitical head of the state, the monarch. Wouldn't it be better to have a continually updated written explanation of the constitution rather than one in legislation? And finally, uh, related to this, I think, is Chris David, who's asking, yeah, but does a written constitution guarantee good governance? So I guess, uh, so, you know, what's the problem that's being solved here? And, you know, I'm at the dinner party. You know, what's the best answer? when Okay, people... okay. The, uh, the, the problem as it presented it to me was the second Miller case in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament for a period of time. Historians said that happened every autumn because the parties went off to the seaside to have their party conferences. However, the Supreme Court, under its then president, with great help from one other of the 12 justices, put together a very short judgment over a weekend, which all 11 of them supported, which said that Boris could not do what he had done, namely exercise a royal prerogative power, because he'd not given the court a good reason. The court did not have the power to make that decision, and that is why Lord Sumption, on his way out of the court, said there'd been a legal revolution. We cannot have the Supreme Court engaging in legal revolutions because that is completely unconstitutional. So I would want a constitution to protect the Supreme Court, but also to prevent it from mission creep. The US Supreme Court mission creeped in the early 19th century, and the Court of Justice of the European Union did the same thing in the 1960s. But if you write it down, you can actually tell a court, you do not have the power to write your own constitution and to run your own agenda. You do have the power to interpret the constitution and you do have the power to censure the legislature or the executive branch of government, but you're only a branch of government. You're not dominant in the constitution. You're just the third leg on the stool. Okay, um, we've got about uh, seven or eight minutes left. I, I want to turn to one last issue, which is you know keeping a written constitution up to date. Um, you know, it is amazing when you look at the U.S. Constitution. There are 33 amendments, uh, but people who, who haven't studied it forget that 10 of them came in as the Bill of Rights in the first instance. In, in fact, they're not really amendments; they're really part of the original uh, ratification of the document. Um, so then you're left with 23 amendments over, you know, to, to 230 years. So it's one one a decade, which is, you know, not particularly, in my opinion, uh, one way or the other. And, and those in turn come in clumps, and many were were uh, very early on, as opposed to uh, more lately. So it's a an interesting problem there about speed. Um, so Richard Harvey saying so many constitutions have proven to be shackles to past attitudes. 
which countries manage to update their constitutions speedily and how do they do it? And that's somewhat assuming speed is a virtue, but we <laughs> talked on that. Um, I haven't investigated it, but I would like to think Germany behaves in a kind of Teutonic way on these matters. Uh, their constitution only dates from the post-war period. Uh, and they do seem to have an efficient, uncontroversial system of government, which does not break down. Though, of course, is being threatened by populism, as indeed all the major European states are being threatened by populism. Um, there is a website in Texas, in the US, which has got every constitution in the world on it, including the UK constitution, but all they've got are a whole stack of statutes. Um, I do go digging around in other people's constitutions. The last one I studied was St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which I think was the last colony we gave independence to in 1979. And its constitution, of course, was written in London. And it looks pretty much like the constitution of every colony we have let go, plus every dependency we've had to keep simply because they are too small. The UK is great at writing constitutions for bits of the former empire. It's just, it, it stands off on doing one for itself. Um, it, in a sense, once you say it five times, we ought to have a written constitution. It becomes almost self-evident. Everybody else thinks they've got to have a written constitution. And when you see something like the Miller case in 2019, where suddenly the Supreme Court acted completely out of character, the penny dropped for me at that point. The penny dropped, and I also think it dropped for Sir Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, and that's why he put a commission on the Constitution in the Conservative Manifesto. Um, we had a crisis, we've got over the crisis, but we don't want another constitutional crisis, and we've got a king who might bring one about, and if he doesn't bring one about, members of his family, particularly those who live abroad, could well bring one about. So why not preempt a little bit by at least having a commission, which would be nothing more than a talking shop? Hmm. Uh, Trevor Hilder made a wry comment about you know revealing the hidden wiring <laughs> here. Um, but there's, a, I think, a, a serious question that Hugh Purser poses on the same lines. You know. Could we build a British constitution uh, from existing constitutional platforms? So the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, the Reform Act and others. Uh, I must say I found it interesting because the government uh, Hansard site on legislation is, is actually one of the best sites I've seen. Mind you, I don't, I don't troll them the way that you do. Uh, and I remember going back and having a look at, you know, it tells you what's still extant from some very, very, very old acts. Um, and I was coming um at from the sense of the city of London, you know, keeping her rights and privileges from 1215. Um, uh, you've, you've, you've lobbied me on that before, and I will never forget that I've got to uh, do some more work on one particular governmental institution. And next time I revise the book, try and squeeze it in somewhere. Um, the preamble I've drafted does capture our history for good and ill. Um, and it does reference Magna Carta, and it does reference 
the battle between the Crown and Parliament, and it does reference our Bill of Rights. My criticism, criticism of our history is we did not have an individualist American view of individual rights to give to the citizens. Instead, we had a view, a patrician parliamentary view that parliament would look after her rights. So that's why we've got a great emphasis upon statute law, parliamentary sovereignty, and the greatness of the British people living through an institution. I actually think the people should live separate from the institution, albeit under its governance. Great. Well, um, I'm going to pull this uh, to a close as we move to the third and final poll. Uh, I'll be leading the witnesses a little bit on this one. <laughs> I think the argument that I've got to come out of this, which uh, is, I think, a, quite a compelling one, is this idea that Brexit was a constitutional crisis. And if we want to avoid this in future, we're going to have to address the Constitution. So perhaps best solved with the written one. Now, as ever, um, our folks are very, very slow. We only hit uh, half of the audience answering the poll uh, in about six seconds. So just leaving it open just a little bit so everybody gets a chance to vote. Do you support the notion that the UK needs a written constitution? Yes or no? And we're just going to come up again and you're, wow, wow. So again, a reminder that we uh, started off at 91 to nine, uh, uh, sorry, what was it, 71? 29 to 71. Uh, 9-4, nine, uh, nine now we've moved completely the other way around. Um, so you have convinced nearly 60% uh, of the audience, 60, 40, uh, that we do need a written constitution. That's very impressive uh, for this. A really fascinating talk, and I'm getting a lot of comments and thanks and, and, and points to all of this down here. Um, we also have an interesting comment from Clive Bullen. I, I think this is a wishful thinking, Clive. Could we put clauses in the Constitution, like not allowing 29-year-old interns or the son of a KGP agent <laughs> at the board? Anyway, I think a good point there, in, in a sense. Um, and I would just like to conclude, one of the, the funniest things I, I saw it was attributed to her late majesty, although it's always hard to get the definitive uh, quotes, but apparently she did say at one point, the British constitution has always been puzzling and always will be. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can call on no higher authority. Uh, in fact, not least because it's church and state. So there we go. Uh, uh, when, when, when someone reigns in a relatively relaxed, safe way, they can be flippant like that. If it was 1917 in Petrograd or 1918 in Berlin, what would they have been saying? Uh, nothing like that, that's so true, gosh. Well, uh, look, uh, I can see before you the, uh, the events that we have coming up. Um, a reminder to uh, please do buy the book, uh, which is a good book, a good read. It's got uh, absolutely five-star reviews on uh, Amazon, uh, which is always a good sign. Uh, I have three rounds of thanks, if I can. Uh, one is, uh, really, guys, uh, absolutely super out there, guys and girls. Uh, one of the most vibrant uh, Q&A sessions we've had in ages. Maybe we should do a little bit more on politics. Uh, although I, 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 uh, I, I always worry. Uh, secondly, uh, thanks to our sponsors. You've been absolutely super at letting us branch out a little bit and we appreciate it. You'll see ahead uh, some of the other things coming up. I would point you uh, to tomorrow, Crises in the Making, 
which is going to be an absolutely uh, fascinating uh, session ahead as well. Meanwhile, um, before we quit, we must, of course, thank our speaker. And Austin, I'm afraid here, uh, despite the fact that we like GoToWebinar statistics, it is terrible. It has absolutely no technology for applause. Uh, so we use our Korean karmic clapper to simulate audience uh, audience thanks, but you'll get many, many uh, nice comments when we, when we send you the, the observations and all. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. It was really most enjoyable. <laughs>